Welcome to Not Quite Right. My name's Ed. And I'm Amanda. Coming up later, as part of Get Wrecked, we'll be talking about the movie trilogy Before Sunrise, Before Sunset and Before Midnight. And Ethan Hawke's sweaty head. <laughs> <laughs> so stay tuned. This is off topic, but I just want to talk to you about it anyway. What is the topic exactly? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. No, I've been just like mainlining Post Malone for like the past. Oh, really? Yeah. I've never, I don't think I've ever listened to, I've heard a Post Malone song and I wasn't into it. Yeah, right. And I never kind of went what to the, the next song? level. I don't know. This was like six years ago this or something. This is the thing. Like what, have I been asleep? I mean, I knew he existed, but I was like, I should have been listening to this the whole time. Mm, well, what, like what song is this? And is it a recent song or are you going I, back? I and- have no idea. I don't even know what style of music it is. Like, is it? This is what I think, right? Because mm. I was listening to it, and he's he's got that edgy look, right? Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, okay, like, who hurt you, Post Malone? Mm. Who hurt you, right? So I googled it. I wanted to know who hurt him. You I wanted googled to... who yeah. hurt you, Post yeah, Malone. Well, <laughs> Ask ChatGPT. Yeah, exactly. And turns out nobody, no. nobody. He's, he's fine. He seems fine. Like it's I mean, an aesthetic, yeah. but he's got like the grill. Oh yeah, he's and got the, the face tattoos. tattoos. And I know it's twenty twenty three, and a face tattoo is basically just you know yeah, the equivalent normal. of a new t shirt, mm. and that's fine. But still, it's intense. The look is intense. Yeah. and I'm like, he had some like perfectly cromulent upbringing. Yeah, is, it, is it supposed to be ironic, or does he? I think he just loves the look of it. Yeah. I think he just wants to be part of that world yeah. and I support that and what I what I also loved this was my most favorite Post Malone fun fact and I'm sure anyone who's a fan probably knows this but the name Post Malone was like generated by a like hip-hop name generator <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> and yeah. I just think that is so fabulous mm. that he ran with that he's the most fake wannabe and yet so good but that's what I mean it's half ironic I it's don't half know. sincere. You know when people who identify as like other genders or mm. people who identify as something other than it's like he was born into the wrong body and yeah, he yeah. or born into the wrong life and what he really wanted to be born into was a very difficult life. Yeah. With a lot of challenges and a lot of struggle. And so he's just manufactured like <laughs> his life to just go with with that, I don't know. So what is his music? Like, is he a rapper or is he is he like a DJ Khaled type who just kind of says his name on songs? And then no, 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 no. Well, look, it's it's interesting because he does a bit, bit of cross-genre mm. stuff. So I wouldn't say it's necessarily one thing specifically. But when you listen, like I have on repeat, there's a definitely a distinctive sound that he has. But it's almost pop. Yeah. Well, it is pop. It's at least partially pop. You know, a bit of hip-hop. Bit of R and B, but does, but of, does he rap, um, or, or does he sing, or does sing. he? He sings. Okay, he sings. Yeah, right. he's got a very sweet voice, actually. Some of his songs are garbage, mm. but there's a few of them that I just really love, and I think he's, I think he's very talented. Yeah. So, which one? Which what would you recommend? Okay, so on repeat, I've been listening to Circles, and I've been listening to Chemical, amazing. But like, if I had to say what the genre was, I would call it like Gen Z emo. Yeah, because <laughs> it's very like, you know, emo. The vibe is very much like you're struggling when there is no struggle, yeah. kind of. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's, a good summary. it's it's all about the aesthetic. Yeah. It's like I feel dark. I don't really have yeah. a good reason, but I'm just going to project into the world mm. this view of myself that's just like I'm having a hard time, and I love it. I appreciate it. I think he's very talented. He knows what he's doing in terms of music production. But yeah, that's Post my Malone. latest my latest you heard obsession. It here first, six years later. <laughs>
So this is really uncomfortable, but I have to actually issue an on-air apology. Mm. And we're going back now to episode six. This is a while ago now. But I was really laying into the Nepo babies and my brother reminded me that I'm a Nepo baby. (laughs) (laughs) So I work for the family business and have done for quite some time with my mum. And so I just want to sincerely apologise to all the Nepo babies that I offended. (laughs) (laughs) But that's different. You were talking about other people. Yeah, right. Got you. No, totally. I just, I feel like I was really laying into that idea of like leveraging your privilege and... (laughs) I don't know. It is similar, but it's also not because there's a difference between having a family business that you then work at as opposed to just getting the foot in the door (laughs) into the industry just because your parents work there. That's a different thing, I think. Okay. Like, you know, okay, Jeff Bezos' kids, I don't know if he's got kids, but like they're going to inherit the company. Like, okay. No, he doesn't even own the company anymore. What are you talking about? Whatever. Just a random (laughs) example. I think it's a different thing. Yeah. And to be fair, I'm not sure how cutthroat the L&D industry is, like, whereas I'm taking the place of someone who otherwise would want my position. But anyway. I'm sure people are not whispering in the industry, like, she only got there because of her dad. (laughs) (laughs) They might be. They might be. Maybe it's a very petty industry. It is. Well, you know, there's a lot of Karens. (laughs) And you're one of them now. I am. Mm. So after the Not Quite Right prize, we put the word out that we would be able to provide some constructive feedback on some of the stories as an optional extra, and we got some good responses there. Yeah, it was clearly something people were interested in getting, which... I fully understand because sometimes you just send these things out into the void. (laughs) The feedback you get is you didn't make the long list and that's all you get and you get to wonder forever why that might be. Yeah. (laughs) So it's nice to close that loop for those who were interested, I think. Yeah. And so we were thinking, I mean, when you're writing these, you're never really sure how the feedback is going to be taken uh, yes. by the person at the other end. Yes. So we wanted to talk a little bit about that process and what we're thinking and how we intend that feedback to be received. You and I give each other feedback, particularly during competitions. And between us, like, I think we have a pretty good thing going. I really enjoy the feedback you give me. I hope my feedback is useful to you. It seems to be. I feel like we're on a pretty good wavelength where we can be critical without, like, completely undermining the confidence of the other person, which is, of course, always the fear. And it's a fear I have in particular because I'm pretty critical. You know, I'm very critical of myself in particular. Mm -hmm. But in a situation, something I'm passionate about, which is writing, something that I've educated myself very deeply about, if someone asks me to give feedback, I'm going to have opinions. And from my perspective, it's all about lifting each other up. Mm. You know, so it's by no means like, oh, I want to undermine their confidence. I want them to write in a specific style. It's very much just, oh, my God, here's some ideas. (laughs) Like if you do this, it's going to be so much better. But I do worry often that I'm too critical for some people in particular and the last thing I would want to do is undermine someone's confidence and make them stop writing. Yeah, and you can only really be constructive if you're on the same page with the person providing the feedback about what the intention of that feedback is. Sometimes people have an expectation that the feedback just should be positive and reinforcing and telling you that you're doing a good job. Mm. But in reality, feedback often has to be, for it to be constructive, it should really point out where the weaknesses are. And I think that's where I have come a cropper a few times Mm. in the past where my feedback style and the style of the person who's accepting the feedback just don't gel. Mm. And I've found it on the other side of the coin too when I've been receiving feedback. I've got a pretty tough skin, so that's not to say that they were too harsh. Sometimes it's more just like this is not 
what I asked for. <laughs> like, this is not what I need. You're giving me a line edit when I'm at the conception stage. Yeah. Like, and we're just not speaking the same language. Or so if someone is too positive, I get really sus. Yeah. Like if they're just like, wow, this is the best thing I've ever read. I just think, oh, this is not helpful because my brain just starts going, here's all the reasons why it's not. Yeah. You know? And we've, we've talked privately about the New York City Midnight mm. forums. Mm. So as part of that competition, when you submit your story, you get access to a forum where you can share your story and get feedback from other people in the forum and... Without exception, the feedback is always just, it's not feedback, it's really just praise yeah. for all the stories, which I think, you know, maybe at that stage of the process where it's post-submission, yeah. that might be the only appropriate feedback to mm, give. That's true. Yeah. it's a good point. But I think, like, to me, when I posted my stories on the feedback forum, I was excited. I'm like, ooh, free feedback from mm. strangers. Like, I'm going to get some objective feedback on my work. To me, that was a real draw card of the competition, which was a paid competition to say, oh, I'm going to just get free feedback on my writing. Awesome. And then I posted my stories and it was just fluff. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't really feedback. And I mean, you make a very good point that this is post entry and for a lot of people, what they need is reassurance, mm. but that's not what I was there for. And so it just felt like, for want of a better phrase, a massive circle jerk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, as with anything, if you want to get better, mm. you need to know what you're doing wrong. Exactly. I mean, I'm not asking for people to come along and just rip it to shreds. Mm. You're just like, here's a whole bunch of people, hundreds of people, thousands, I think, sometimes in that competition with different perspectives, mm. different outlooks coming from a different place who are able to tell me, here's one thing. Maybe it's just one thing that I thought you could do differently. And I don't have to take all that feedback, but like I can learn, I guess, yeah. and see things through other people's eyes. And I mean, we are talking flash fiction. So sometimes it is just tiny details yeah. that make the difference, but it's like everyone's too scared to be honest. And mm. I just, I'm a really honest person. <laughs> and so I find that just really pointless, basically. So when we're talking about giving and receiving feedback in the writing world, like you've got to be on the same wavelength. Mm. Otherwise there's just no point starting. And there are certain people whose feedback I can't tolerate, honestly, and there's people who I'm scared to give feedback mm. to in those circles because I know we're not the right fit. So the people whose feedback I can't tolerate, I, I don't ask for it. Mm. Or I ask for it and I take it knowing that the things that we don't click on are going to be there mm. when I read that feedback and then I can just cut that out. So why do you think that is? Do you think it's because they have different personal preferences or their style of feedback is too general or more focused on the positive aspects as opposed to the negative? I think there's a whole range of reasons of why you might not click with a critique partner. So some of the ones I've experienced are, yes, they're too positive, but in a way that just feels to me like not genuine. Yep. It might be that those are the people I go to when I need a mm. lift and you do, you know, but I wouldn't go to them for meaningful, critical feedback because I know they wouldn't give it. Yeah. Another issue I've had in the past is with critique partners, people who <laughs> have given wonderful feedback but it is completely at the wrong phase of my mm. writing process. So, like, I'm finishing my first draft, guys, and you're telling me, you know what you could do? You could start with a completely different premise and here's the premise I would start with and here's all the different characters that you would have. And it's like, look, yeah. you know, thank you, but... Where were you six months ago? Yeah, exactly. And so, but now I know that. And honestly, 
the person I'm thinking of, I would go to them at the start of the mm. process when I'm still trying to come up with ideas because their ideas are bloody awesome. And that's the problem mm -hmm. because when they come with these ideas, you're like, you're actually 100% right, but now pff, there goes my foundation yeah. because <laughs> what do I do now? But absolutely would go to them at the start of the process when I need that sort of big picture thinking. So, I mean, I really think there is a lot of this very personal, like, connection. It can be hard to find a critique partner that you trust. And by the same token, I think I am too much for a lot of people. <laughs> so I think there are people who I undermine with my critical feedback and I do not want to do that. That is not my goal. But I know as well that there are people who love my critical feedback because they know they're going to get honesty from me. And so when I'm saying something critical, then they're like, okay, I probably need to consider that. But also when I'm saying something positive, they know I really mean mm. it and it's not bullshit. I think when you're working with someone like that, when they do say something positive, it actually means more yep. and it's actually more helpful. At least that's my experience. But I think that's part of the problem because we get told all the time about the compliment sandwich, mm -hmm. right? Like, this is a compliment sandwich. And I roll my eyes at that because if someone gives me a compliment sandwich, you know I'm like, you yeah. just gave me a compliment yeah. sandwich. Like, cut the bullshit. Just give me the meat, baby. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, like, I think there's a better way to approach it because I think in writing circles there's too many fillings. Mm. When you're writing, especially if it's a longer piece like a book, I'm not going to waste your time. You know, 66% of what I say to you is going to be positive. That's wasting yeah. everyone's time. And you know I'm not going to give you 66% of the stuff is going to be positive. It's mostly going to be critical because mm. that's what you came here for. Yep. So I think in this context it's probably more helpful to think of a balance of positive and negative, that balance is going to be skewed to the negative, right? To still remain in balance, what we're talking about is if you're giving really big picture negative feedback, maybe that's enough. Just focus on the key issues rather than hammering every single thing that you see. Yep. But I think the other thing to keep in mind is like even critical feedback can be framed in a positive light. So it's not about, oh, I need two compliments to every criticism, it's about how can I frame the criticisms in a way that's going to make them more palatable, more meaningful and not completely derail the other person's efforts. Yeah. I think for me as a like a recipient of feedback, the way I, I tend to frame it is you're not, with writing, you're not getting an objective, this is what is wrong with your story. You're getting another reader's opinion. Yeah. Right. Don't think of it as, well, someone says that my work is X, that means it is X. Maybe they have their own personal biases as well. But that's where it becomes this like interplay, right? Mm, so yeah. it's not just about giving constructive feedback, it's constructively receiving feedback yeah. too. So, And that's why I think we've got a good thing going because we both can handle criticism. Mm. We both actually prefer that. And I think as well, like we both know, like if I'm giving you feedback, it's because I think this will help you get a better result yeah, in the competition. Exactly. So it's knowing that person's on your side and not just like trying to undermine you for their own ego or mm. whatever reasons they might be doing that. One feature I think is quite common in our feedback that we give to each other is times when either of us will say, okay, like you might completely disagree with this, but here's what mm. I think, or this is totally a matter of style. So fully okay if you disagree with me, but, and I think it's opening up that acknowledgement that there's bias yep. or, you know, a lack of objectivity at times and to sort of make it more objective. I mean, our writing styles aren't the same. Mm. So 
when I read your stuff, I'm reading it like, what do I think he wants this to yeah. achieve? What do I think he likes about this? Yeah. And to honour that and not to go, oh, let's make it a carbon copy of how I would write this story. Yeah, it's very easy to pick up something that someone else has written and say, well, I would have said it like this. Yes. No, that's super unhelpful. And I think that can be tempting. Mm -hmm. And I do do it in cases where it's like, I need to demonstrate what I'm trying to say. And here's an example. But like, for the love of God, don't use my words, use your own. But this is what I'm trying to say, as opposed to like, I'm amazing and I can fix this for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and oftentimes I find when I'm doing that, like when I'm trying to write ex- an example, it's actually really shit because mm-hmm. you feel like, oh, this is going to be really great now. I'm telling you to fix yours. So now my example has to be fantastic. Yeah. And, in fact, it comes out just sounding like shit. And it's like, well, maybe that's helpful because they go, oh, actually, oh, yours, <laughs> like my sentence is way better. I think there are times in the past where you've sent me feedback. I can't think of a specific example, mm. but uh, just a general feeling where you've said, well, maybe you should be doing this, right? Mm. Whatever it happens to be. And when I read that feedback, I've thought, well, actually, but I'm going for something different. I'm trying mm. to do, uh, you know, something else. And that's why I've done it this way. And what that tells me is not that your way is better than mine. It's that I haven't got across what I'm trying to mm. do properly. And I mean, we have that luxury that we can go back and forth and Mm. you can then say to me, actually, what I was trying to do is X. And I can then say, oh, well, in that case, like if you haven't already solved the problem in your own head of why you haven't managed to put that across, perhaps I might have a suggestion of how you might have achieved that for me as Mm. a reader. I think too, like if you're giving feedback that you might adjust your feedback depending on the person who's receiving it. Certainly I do that. After I've gotten to know someone and their approach to feedback, I would adjust it or knowing what phase of the process they're at. Like, are they at conceptual stage? Are they at first draft stage? Do they need big picture stuff and a cheerleader? Or are we further down the track and they're actually wanting to nitpick now and look at things like, you know, emotional resonance or sort of deeper themes, pacing, things like that. But what I do know about myself is that I cannot help myself if I find something that I think seriously needs to be looked at. And so therefore, if I feel like the person perhaps is going to be fragile to that critical feedback, I just don't think I can do it because <laughs> mm-hmm. I know that about myself. I just won't be able to not do it. And I, I don't want to risk the friendship and the amount of times that I've given out feedback and just like afterwards thinking, was I too harsh? It's a constant struggle. <laughs> is this just a personality thing? Because there are some people who seem to only want you know, positive reinforcement and praise because it gives them the motivation to keep writing and they'll eventually work through their issues and eventually at the end of the day they'll come up with something that is good enough. It's good for them. They're happy. Yeah, I mean, I certainly know people who need more encouragement and praise Mm. and that's fine. That's fine. That's just what gets you through. God, we're all just trying to do our best here, you know, and if you can acknowledge that about yourself, that all I need is a cheerleader, well, then don't ask me for feedback. (laughs) It's the moral of the story. Ask Um, ChatGPT because ChatGPT is really good. so gentle. Yes. But I think it's super valid for writers to also need cheerleading, Mm. and I do. I'm talking about how I can handle criticism, absolutely, but it can derail you. I think it also depends on, as a recipient, how you feel about what you've just written because sometimes I've written something that I'm not happy with and needs I know it needs improving and you give me constructive feedback, I'm thinking, great, like yeah. now I can definitely work on this. But if I've just finished writing something that I love mm. and I think is perfect mm. and then someone comes back with, well, fix this, this and this, then I'm like, oh, well, actually I don't know anything. No, I know what you mean. Yeah, and I think, I don't know, at that point all you want is typos, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
So with all that being said, so from the perspective of not quite right prize feedback that we're providing, Mm. what are your thoughts around that? Well, I guess just acknowledge like if you have received a feedback report and found it to be a little bit overwhelming, that's a me problem, not a you problem. (laughs) That's me not tempering my feedback appropriately and not balancing it appropriately. So I hope that you are able to take from the feedback things that you do find helpful and ignore that stuff that you don't agree with because that's what it's all about. I'm not here presenting myself as an expert. I'm here presenting myself as a fellow rider who wants the best for you and wants the best for your advancement as a rider. And so you ask for the feedback, you got it, and you do what you want with it from there. I think something else to consider too, if you're feeling sensitive about the feedback, first of all, it's never a good idea to just read it and then start reacting immediately. Mm. So we know in any creative pursuit, you put yourself into what you're doing. And if you have a piece of writing that you have invested yourself in, then it can be very difficult to separate yourself back out when you're receiving feedback about that. I think if you've had critical feedback, the best advice is to read it, rage privately with your loved ones or whatever about how stupid the reviewer is and how they know nothing and how they didn't understand your vision. Mm. 100% valid. We love to do that here. Not quite right. (laughs) In private. And then when you've had some time and space come back again. And what you might find is actually you might start to feel better about what you're reading because that personal element is gone. If you can take time and then become open, open but also critical in your own mind about what's being said to you, is does this ring true for me or not? Because it may not and that's okay. This was a great example of a time when I sent feedback out and just panicked and thought, oh, my God. I hope that wasn't too harsh. Mm. I hope that wasn't going to undermine this person from entering competitions because, honestly, the stories I was providing feedback on were all fantastic. But nevertheless, the panic sets in. I really, really hope I didn't undermine someone's confidence. There are a few a few people who asked for feedback who had made the long list mm. and yeah. they had good stories. They yeah, made absolutely. the long list. And it's all about just how to get a little bit better, how to kind of elevate to the next level. And we can all be better. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Writing is, it's almost unique among, I guess, pursuits that to some degree or other, everyone who is educated can write. Mm. And if you put yourself in a bubble and you don't get much feedback on what you've written, you can easily pretend Mm. that you're a great writer. Mm. And it's so subjective that it's really hard to really evaluate where you are. So this is really the only way you can get better. That's it. And you can't always see that yourself as the author. What was the difference between me and the winner? Like I actually, mine's better in my opinion. And look, honestly, again, it's subjective. Maybe it is. And maybe if you asked different judges, they would have picked you. However, as the judges, we can tell you why we didn't and what the difference was in our view between your piece and a piece that perhaps did better in the competition. Well, maybe I'll ask you now. Okay. What do you think makes good feedback? Like when you ask for feedback, and again, we acknowledge we're similar, like we both sort of tend towards wanting the more critical stuff. What do you think makes it helpful? Yes, Mm. I think it's good to receive feedback at all levels. Mm. Like a story can succeed or fail 
based on something that is really kind of overarching. Mm. And often, you know, you can get feedback at the level of the sentence or certain characters or dialogue is not right, but that's not actually fixing the problem. Mm. Like I know that there are some stories that we read that were maybe focused on something like an action sequence or something that was happening that wasn't as compelling maybe as the relationship Mm. in the story, Mm -hmm. right? So it could be just a different focus or a different, just a different way of structuring it that could really help. And it really depends on how complete or how close that story Mm. is, right? If it's, if it's way off the mark, there's, there's just no point saying, well, you could have written this dialogue a bit clearer. If, if fixing that thing is not going to fix the story, then focus on the thing that fixes the story is, is I guess what I'm saying. Yeah. You can put your feedback in tears. And I think Mm. that this is what I was saying before about sometimes receiving feedback that is just not at the level I'm at at Mm. that time and that can be unhelpful. I think in flash fiction, in competitions with short deadlines, you and I are just kind of merging everything. Like here's everything, here's a word vomit of everything I thought when I read your story, including typos, including, you know, tiny little details, including what you're saying about dialogue because you don't know what time the other person has to deal with their issues or capacity. So you might say, okay, you've only got time to fiddle around the edges and just hand it in knowing this isn't going to be my best work, but yeah. it's a piece and I'm more happy with it now than I was two hours ago and I'm satisfied with the changes that I made. And you just live with the changes you weren't able to make, yeah. I guess. Yeah, and you can go into a writing competition not expecting to win it. Yeah. You know, you can yeah. you can just, it is practice. Absolutely. as long as you write something that you're happy with and Even that you can you learn don't, from it. Like, honestly, when I write something and I friggin' enter it, I'm like patting myself on the back like I had a busy weekend and I actually entered like go me and I know I'm not going to win or shortlist or whatever but but I love writing Mm. so I did it you know and and that can be a reward in itself and especially if you pay to enter the comp like you don't want to rule yourself out just because you didn't even try like you got to keep your hat in the ring kind of thing actually one of the things that I found myself saying repeatedly in the feedback I was giving to the entrants who asked for feedback was get a critique partner. So Mm. everything we're just talking about now, you can't do that by yourself. And okay, some of these critique relationships might not be perfect, but they will always give you something that you cannot do yourself. And in particular, one thing that I find that I can do for you and that critique partners can do for each other is pick up like, oh, that sentence, I stumbled on it. And this is one of those kill your darlings thing, but you don't have to always kill your darlings. Sometimes it's a case of like, you didn't even realise, but the sentence just, the cadence of it is wrong to the person who's reading it. Mm. Like we've all read a poem where the syllables were a bit off and you get to the end of, or like, especially like kids' picture books. Oh God, they do this all the time where the rhythm of the rhyme is off Mm -hmm. and you read it wrong. And it's something like really deeply frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that can happen in your writing and in flash fiction or any fiction writing that your sentence just doesn't quite sound right. And sometimes it's like all you need to do is flip the sentence the other way around. That's actually or split it into two sentences sometimes. Split it into sometimes. two is another big one. And what, how I describe this is stumbling. You know, when yeah. we talk to each other, I'm like, I stumbled on that sentence. And it's not that there's anything particularly like wrong with the, if if I read it, in the voice that you wrote it. And eventually I can get there, right? If I read it a couple of times, I go, oh, this yep. is what he meant it to sound like. But if if I have to work for that, that's going to hurt your chances at winning a competition. So I want to tell you that, like mm-hmm. make it more clear or make it read the way you want it to the first mm-hmm. time. 
All right. So hopefully that was useful to some of the people who have requested feedback and we hope that you haven't been too offended. Mm. We are definitely going to offer that as a formal option next time we run the Not Quite Right Prize, mm. which will hopefully be fairly soon. Um, uh, but, yeah, only do it if you want critical feedback because if you yes. think mine's bad, you should see it. <laughs> <laughs> I will shit all over your writing. <laughs> if you're into that. <laughs> each episode, Amanda and I take turns recommending each other books or movies that we may not have chosen for ourselves. It's a segment we call Get Wrecked. This time it was my turn and I recommended three films. It's the trilogy, Before Sunrise, Before Sunset and Before Midnight, which were directed and co-written by Richard Linklater. So Richard Linklater is an American director who has a pretty diverse filmography. He started out with a movie called Slacker in the early 90s, which was kind of his breakout indie movie. He wrote and directed Dazed and Confused, School of Rock, and more recently Boyhood, which was, I think, his most critically acclaimed, but also a few animated movies, Waking Life, A Scanner Darkly, and Apollo Ten and a Half. But the movies that we're talking about today, it wasn't originally planned as a trilogy. I think the first one was planned as a standalone before Sunrise. It was released in 1995 and each of the sequels was released exactly nine years uh, after the previous one. The movies centre around two characters, Jesse, played by Ethan Hawke, and Celine, played by Julie Delpy, who is a French actress who had, a, I guess, a moment in the mid-90s with this movie and uh, the Three Colours series, among others. And both Julie Delpy and Ethan Hawke actually had a lot of input into the script mm. for these movies as well. So mm -hmm. they're... Um, Through ad-libbing? No, actually not. Mm -hmm. they, they actively wrote alongside Richard Linklater and his, his co-writer, and they actually wrote each other's parts. So Julie oh. wrote some of the dialogue for Ethan and Ethan wrote some of the dialogue for Julie. All right, so before we get into the movies in more detail, I think I'd like to kind of go through them one by one and talk about them. Did you have any initial thoughts? Well, I just wanted to say thank you because it feels like a birthday present that you gave me an Ethan Hawke series <laughs> of films to watch. So thank you very much. Okay, so you like Ethan Hawke as an actor? Ethan Hawke or just is as like, a man. Just as a man. <laughs> man. He's, he's like the thinking woman's Brad Pitt. Do you know what I mean? Oh. <laughs> Although I do have to say his hair was an entire situation across the three films mm. and I did find that stressful. Just quickly, yeah. what was going on with Ethan Hawke's hair? <laughs> In the first one? In all of them. It's a different situation each time yeah, and it yeah. just gets he progressively worse. Age doesn't just make your hair buff up like that. Like, has he met products? Like, I mean, he's, a, he's, he's in Greece. Get some fucking olive oil in your hair. Like, he goes from the greasiest slime ball in the first film mm. to, like, I don't know, his hair's just straw. And he was so gaunt in the second film. He was so gaunt. Yeah. I Googled. Did he have a drug problem in this? <laughs> she was thinner as well in the second one. She, she like thinned up and he made a comment about that. Like you look thinner and she's like, you saying I was fat before? Oh, that's right. No, I mean, and uh, that's what I really liked, especially mm. in the third one too. Like just looking at Celine and being like, okay, she looks like a normal woman my age. Like yeah. that's nice yeah. to see. <laughs> yeah. I really wanted to fall in love with Ethan Hawke in these films and it just wasn't. He wasn't that lovable. I, he I didn't wasn't. fall in love with him. No, it was upsetting. But apart from that, I appreciated his presence. So thank you. <laughs> well, I hope you liked these movies more than some of my other recommendations, but I won't presume. 
So let's talk about Before Sunrise. It opens with a train scene. Mm -hmm. There's an older couple who are arguing in German. And I think one of the things I like about this movie is that it's not subtitled. Yeah. So when people are speaking in other languages, just as if you were there and you didn't speak the language, you yeah. don't really know what they're saying. Mm. So there's a, an older couple arguing in German. Celine is sitting mm -hmm. next to them. She gets up and, and ends up sitting across from Jesse. And it's almost foreshadowing what happens later in the series and what that couple kind of becomes. Spoiler alert. I mean, people have only had like 11 years to watch That's whatever right. it is. <laughs> yeah. No, how, how long? Since this one came out, I mean, it's yeah. almost 30 years, isn't it? Mm. So, yeah, there's that kind of foreshadowing of what's to come. And I think there's that youthful thought that you're going to be different somehow, right? Mm. And and also the the fact that it is such a random occurrence that ends up changing their whole lives, just the mm. fact that there was a couple arguing. Mm. She changed seats. She happens to sit next to well, him. Well, I mean, have you seen Sliding Doors? It's all about the it's, trains. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I guess my, my, I mean, maybe I'm jumping ahead of myself here, but my biggest criticism, so basically we're following these two characters through one night together. Yes. So the whole film is this one night. And it feels almost like you've seen the whole night. Like obviously we're jumping mm. through, like it's only a couple of hours long movie, but it feels like you've followed them the whole evening. And it's all dialogue. You're just yep. following them around. It's like you, you know, you want to be a fly on the wall, like you really are in this in this film. I think my big criticism is that I didn't buy the chemistry between them. And I think that's so vital. So I mean, it was interesting in a way that they didn't, to me, have great chemistry because it almost made it more believable. You yeah. know what I mean? And more real that they were just two normal people. Like they weren't yeah. this epic love story that they sort of created the love story in their own heads in a way. Yeah, I think that's what I like about it is that you watch a romance movie or a traditional chick flick, characters act in a certain way that people mm. don't in real life. But here we've got two characters that are very awkward mm. and they're not sure about what's going to happen next. Then but didn't you feel, I don't know, I just felt like, are you even that into each other? Like you just oh, couldn't I, tell at any I, point. I disagree that, that there wasn't chemistry. I felt that they were both clearly into each other but also very much reserved. Like they don't want to give themselves away. Mm. They don't want to expose themselves. They're not really sure what the next step is going to be. You know, so they meet on the train. He's supposed to get off at Vienna and she's supposed to continue on to where she lives in Paris. And he starts to get off and then he has second thoughts and he takes a chance and he says, how about you get off at Vienna with me and we spend the day together and then you can go back to, you know, because I think we've got a connection. And she says yes, and they do. But they're never really sure as they go from scene to scene, as you would be in that situation mm. and with someone who you've only just met. Mm. You're not sure if it's going to work out. You're not sure if it's going to go to the next stage and watching a, a romantic movie and you see the two characters, you know, they're the two leads. They're no, yeah. you know, they're going to end up, but I think this movie tries hard to capture the fact that, well, they don't know. Yeah. And there's a moment, for example, you know, as they wander through the city of uh, Vienna, that's the whole movie. Basically they wander yeah, through the city wandering around. and they have conversations. <laughs> One of the places they stop is a record shop. And she picks out a record and they say, okay, let's go listen to it. And they go and listen to it in, in a listening booth and it's very private. And they're the two of them. And you think, oh, they're going to kiss. Yeah. Okay. I'll give you that scene. There was a lot of chemistry in that scene. That was a fantastic scene. And, An and they, amazing scene where they just keep looking at each other yes. and the others not look. Oh, yes, that 100%. But only that. Only oh. that scene. Not even when they kiss later. Spoiler alert, they do yeah. kiss. So then that next scene they kiss in, in the Ferris wheel mm. and it's only because she kind of takes control of the situation mm. because he's scared. I don't know. He was having a go. 
No, but he was, <laughs> that was the second opportunity that he was like, this is the right time. And he just couldn't do it. Yeah. I mean, the whole point of it is how, how real it is and how it is in real time. And, and I guess, especially at that time, that was unique. You know, now mm. we've seen bloody big brother and keeping yeah. up with the Kardashians and stuff. And that wasn't a thing back then. So this was much more unique. And I think in the writing, it comes through as well. There's a couple of times when Ethan Hawke's character talks about his ideas mm -hmm. and you know, they're the ideas of the man who wrote the movie, right? Like yes. he's talking about, Oh, if I could, I, what I want to do is I want to create a, a series where we just follow people yes. through their day-to-day -day lives and to see like the boring stuff of life, you know, and that's what this, I mean, I wouldn't call this boring. Like it's obviously a, a selected moment and it's probably one of those moments that you would remember for the rest of your yeah. life, like a big day in your life. And she calls it a National Geographic for people, yes. basically. Yeah. And what his point was, and look, I, I like this because I think I have a similar kind of, you know, sensibility. You, t um, you totally do. You, know, you totally and, and do. And he was saying, why, why is one thing beautiful and another thing not beautiful? And why can't you, you know, because we have these daily lives that are a certain way. Why can't we see the beauty in just the things that we do? Just like a plastic bag blowing like down the street, for example. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> do you ever feel like a plastic bag? Regularly. Yes. Full of air. Yes. So one scene that I found really impressive was the scene on the tram. So they're travelling through Vienna. They're on a tram and it's like a 20-minute scene or something like that. I wasn't timing it. But there are no cutaways so these two characters have done 20 minutes of solid dialogue with nothing else going on, not a yep. single break to catch any errors, yep. which is why I presume there was some ad-libbing because how, how do you memorise that much and act it so convincingly as well? So that, I think, is a credit to the actors, credit to the writing, no doubt, and just a really interesting approach that you obviously don't see because, God, imagine how many takes you would normally have to do to get mm, that down. Completely. And the dialogue, I think they did well for, to make it sound quite improvised and natural. You know, it wasn't polished dialogue. It wasn't quick mm. back and forth. Yeah, there sometimes were, there it some just silences. sort of, yeah, There were just faded some looks out. and, you know, someone would ask a question and they would be thinking about it or you could kind of gauge the underlying dynamic like he was trying to impress her and she mm. was trying to impress him and they were tr mm. trying not to give away too much of themselves and they were trying to give away just enough to learn about the other person these are the kind of discussions that you would have if you were falling in love with someone and you spent all night with them. I have to say I found Celine's character incredibly relatable mm -hmm. and felt very similar to her, particularly in the line where when they're first getting to know each other, so they've just gotten off the train. This is, I think, on the tram when they're yep. talking and and uh, Jessie starts to ask her some really personal questions, like some real get-to-know-you mm. kind of questions really quickly. And one of his questions is, what pisses you off? Yeah. And her answer is everything. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yes, mm. <laughs> I can relate. But then she goes on to describe some very specific things that piss her off and I could also hard relate on those as well. So from that moment on, I was on board with Celine. But the thing I love as well is that you never really wholeheartedly agree with or love one of the characters. Mm -hmm. They both have aspects of their personality that, that are not positive. Red flags. There are lots of red flags for, for both of them, <laughs> yeah. I think. and Like Ethan Hawke's greasy hair was a massive red flag. <laughs> <laughs> but he'd just been, you know, travelling all over Europe. He'd I just come know. from Budapest or something. I know, but still a movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> still got to be visually appealing. 
<laughs> and okay, so here's another scene. There's the scene where they were at the the cafe, and then the palm reader comes yes. along, yeah. right? And he's just very cynical and dismissive of the mm. whole thing. Like, this yeah, is really rubbish. rude. I was like, you know what? If that was me, I'd be put off right then and there. I'd be like, see you later. I'm off to Paris. But Goodbye. even I, who would think that about a palm reader, <laughs> was kind of shocked. Like, you know, I wouldn't yeah. behave like that. But she kind of lets it go. But yeah. then she brings it up later, yeah. which everyone wants to happen because that was very rude. Yeah. And then you see some differences in the way that they kind of perceive life mm. out of that. You know, mm. he's going to be very cynical and she doesn't necessarily believe in the palm reading. Yeah, but it's not the point. But that's not the point. Yeah. Again, hard relate. Like that's yeah. how I feel. You know what I mean? Like I don't believe in a palm reader, but I do because why not? It's fun. What difference does it make? You know what I mean? Like if yeah. you lean into something like that because it brings you joy or because yeah. honestly I would find all that sort of mysticism, first of all, I think there's a feminist undertone to all that stuff anyway, mm. that women tap into their intuition and that there is a lot of it that actually is true in a way that can't be scientifically proven and I do strongly believe that. But also like it can help you unpack the thoughts that you thoughts have. Thoughts that yeah. you have. Like it makes you reflect. It mm. makes you delve into things, you know, it challenges you or it presents things in a slightly different light or validates you or all of these things that are meaningful, useful things to have, you can get from a palm reading. So he had this whole thing about the palm reader, but while they're on the, the tram, he espoused some bullshit theory about souls mm. that didn't make any sense. Oh, how, that we're all a percentage of yeah, it. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And that was just some bullshit he, idea he had, but he kind of identified. So he's not consistent whatsoever. Like, and he saw a ghost too. So he's Yeah, exactly. So people are like that. People will be like, oh, I don't believe in, mm. in that. But anyway, I kind of believe that we've got like one quarter of a soul or whatever <laughs> his, his theory was. So So then I think her assessment of the situation is pretty accurate when she basically says to him, the only reason you didn't like it was because it wasn't about you. Yeah. And you got all, your ego got bruised and so you were reacting on that basis. It's like that's actually pretty good reading of the situation. That's that's right. And, again, (laughs) the great thing is all through this series of three movies, they're both right about things and they're both wrong about things. Sometimes you have a romance movie or a movie of this nature and you've got one person is clearly the protagonist who is the, the lead character mm. and then the other person is the romantic in- interest of that character. Mm. They're very much equal here. The story is equally about both of them and I think it treads that line really well and and never makes one out to be the hero and the other one yeah. out to be. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's, it's sort of not really presenting an argument. It's just mm. presenting the situation and you can sort of... And being that, for example, I relate to her very closely like you might think that I would be sort of on her side or whatever like when they're arguing or what have you but actually I can see the flaws in in what she's saying as well I would say though you you know you say oh in some romances that there's usually a a strong lead and then Mm. a, a romantic interest that's true but I think romance is probably one of the few genres where you often get two leads and you often get both sides of the story I would say it's more common in romance than in a lot of other genres. So they walk through the city, they kiss, and yeah, that's about it. They that's, that's they about chat, it. they chit chat, they chit chat. They encounter a few people randomly, and this is actually something that I think I watched um, his first movie, Slacker, many years ago. But the idea of that movie was it's set in the city of Austin, Texas, mm-hmm. and it's like non-linear, like it follows a conversation. And then a person walks past and then it follows that, that person and then it follows someone else who yeah, right. encounters their path. So it just kind of 
interwoven stories happening in the city. Mm. And there's a little bit of that here. Like they meet these actors who are in a play <laughs> about a cow and they talk about the cow. Like it's yeah. just a random thing so that's weird. a bit amusing, but it has nothing to do with the plot except later on they're like, oh, we never went to that play. Yeah, that stressed me out. I wanted to see the play. <laughs> <laughs> it was called Bring Me the Horns of Wilmington's Cow. <laughs> How good would that have been? It's at least good. something would have happened. <laughs> yeah. It would have been a different movie. It would have been a very different movie. <sighs> and then, so this bit, the scene where they meet the beggar poet, mm. who's like, don't just give me money. Give me some money and I'll write your poem. Mm. That and was the like word, my favourite scene. Was it? Is <laughs> yeah, it, the word. The yes. word is milkshake, the word which is, is the same work as the word that you got in I know. Um, I did New pick up on that. I was like, oh, he did well with this prompt. Yeah. <laughs> and I looked up the poem. It was, it's a poem written by... David Jewell called Delusion Angel. And I actually didn't like it when he was reading it because he was kind of awkwardly reading it with his with an thick accent. accent. Too, yeah. But when you actually read the poem and you, you look at the poem, it's, it's quite good. So um, he was plagiarising. Yes. Yes, you can put it that way. He was an actor reading his lines. Is another no, way but it. no, I'm saying was that poem written elsewhere or was the poem written for the film? Um, not 100% sure, but I think it was written for the, the film. A okay. few things were written okay. for the film. So, Well, I mean, it's an important question. Was the beggar plagiarising something to get no, money no, out no, of No, I don't think that's the, the case. No. I think okay. he, but look, ambiguous because Jesse was like, well, he probably just has the same poem when he just changes yeah. two words, which is probably what you'd do. Like that would be the smart way to do yeah. it. Jesse can't help being cynical at the end of it. He was being such an asshole. This is where the chemistry issue came up for me. Yeah. I'm like, come on, come on, mate. Yeah. You're trying to impress her. You're really being a bit of a dick. Yeah, he can't help himself, but he can't. people like that as well. No one I know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so from the poet, they go on to basically like a pub or a club. There's a guy on guitar playing you know, this song called uh, Feel My Life Pumping Through Me is what the lyrics are that he's singing. And actually, like, there's a few little moments like that in, in the movie. When they're on the train at the start, mm. they're both reading a book. Mm -hmm. and I didn't I didn't have my glasses on, so what? Yeah, I paused <laughs> it and I looked up the book. So she's reading a compilation of novellas by a French guy whose name is probably pronounced something like Georges Bataille. And it's a collection of French erotica. Basically. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, I mean, this is pretty important character establishing. That she's quite open to, to that kind of thing. <laughs> He's reading a book, which is a, a biography of Klaus Kinski, who's an actor who starred in a bunch of movies by Werner Herzog. But the, the relevant part, I think, is the title. And the title is All I Need Is Love. Aww. So it's, uh, I think it's just, it's just signifying that, like, that's what they're both looking for. Love and. Love and kinky sex. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so they're in the club. They're playing pinball. As you do in the club in Vienna. Mm -hmm. And they kind of go into their, their history and they've both broken up, so they're both available. But he's he's basically been dumped by his he's girlfriend on the in Spain. He's on the rebound and he's just spent a couple of weeks travelling around Europe and he's about to go home. There's this moment, I don't know if you picked up on it, when they're walking through the streets and this is after it's dark and they kind of come around a corner and there's this guy playing the drums mm. and a woman singing and he makes some comment like, oh, you've got to pay for any, anything you do in the city. And he gives him 50 shillings and they kind of go around the corner and there's these two guys. Look at them. Did you pick up on that? I got the creeps in this. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of weird that that was in there. Like these two guys, you see them, the couple walking in the distance, but in the foreground you see two guys sitting, chatting and 
turning around to look at them as if they're going to follow them or as if mm. they're going to do something and you're not sure if they're going to do it or not. And then the next scene, Jesse and Celine are basically sitting down in some deserted alley talking and you think they're going to get like robbed or mugged mm. or something bad's going to happen, but it just doesn't. Nothing happens. But I think that was, <laughs> but, but like I, I appreciated that that added to the tension of the scene. Yeah, right. In some way, like, and also realistically, like, sometimes things don't happen. You know what I mean? Like, in, it's that it's that thing in a movie where if you set something up, then yeah, it's going to happen. The gun. But it was set up and then the it just didn't happen. No, you're right. I mean, I think there was probably a few things like that, like the, the cow play, you yeah. know, that they don't go yeah, to. it just didn't happen. It just doesn't happen. And in a way, that's sort of reflecting what you were saying before about how, like, it's just this moment in time that changes everything. Well, there's all these other moments that didn't change anything because yeah. they didn't eventuate. And that's life, isn't it? I mean, a series of opportunities, a series of missed opportunities mm. that shape who you are, who you spend your time with. It's interesting. Yeah. So, okay, so from then on we're kind of into the end of the end of the movie. They're still walking through the streets of Vienna, of course. They, I believe they get on a boat, they yeah. go to a bar, they get a bottle of wine mm. and he promises to pay back the, the I wonder guy. if he ever I, paid I him. What they, do you reckon? They never got Again, never there's got a lot of these that. like little questions that mm. they just leave you with, don't they? Mm. And they start, to, they start to like rationalise and think about, well, like now the Clock's end is ticking. in sight. Mm. Like this is only going to happen until sunrise and then I'm off on the train and we're never going to see each other again. And they kind of have this dance of going through and trying to decide what to do. Like mm. they decide, well, you know, long-term relationships don't work and if we take each other's number, it's not going to work. This is going to fizzle out. First of all, they say, well, we're just never – they agree that they're never going to see each other again yep. and it's and it's going to just end that. there. Should have just done that. <laughs> Should have just done that. <laughs> um, but in the end, they agree as he's getting on the train to meet in six months' time at the same place, mm -hmm. same time. Same bath station. Yep. Same bath station. And that's where the movie ends, mm. like on this cliffhanger. Mm. But actually the the scene after that I think is one of my, the favourite parts about the movie. So he gets on the, tr the train and she's left there and they're like, well, we're going to see each other in six months. Will we? Won't we? We'll see what happens or we won't see. And then the camera goes back through all of the places mm. they went through that night yeah kind of in the in the cold light of day yeah and it's just all these mundane places yeah with it was nothing. such an interesting choice like I really like that because have you ever been in a situation where something has happened that's that's important and you go back the next day and you look at it and it's just a place yeah right of no yeah like they've had this deep conversation at a fountain and mm. you go back in the daytime and the fountain's just still just bubbling away and it's just a fountain and another scene on on a rooftop and that's when it's starting to yep. get down to the wire and they're trying to decide what, what's going to happen next. And, yeah, it's just a rooftop. No, I really like that choice. I think it really reflected basically it sort of made the places come alive to me in a way. Mm. Like the places were so nothing really. Like yep. the film is all dialogue. Really it's all about the two of them mm. and their very interior relationship, right? But that choice to go back through the settings at the end, I felt brought the settings all to life and these real big life events were happening there. Yeah. And then they just went back to sleep again. Yeah. I don't know. It's just interesting to focus on the settings in that way and to let them, I don't know, have their own little story that went on, like yeah. their own little epilogue. Yeah, And, and you wonder what else is going to happen there. Like who, yeah. who's going to break up there? Who's going to fall in love there? Who's going to, you know... 
get mugged there in that alleyway. I think it's also that feeling of a city, right, and especially a foreign city like somewhere where you're travelling and somewhere that's quite different to home. And and Europe is very different to Australia. It's a lot of old buildings, a lot of history, and we don't have that same history in our built cities here. And so if you travel to Europe, like there's there's already this sense of a lot having Mm. gone on before. But even in a modern city, like... These places where these big life events, like that stuff is happening all around you all the time and you're not necessarily aware of it. So that's the first movie. That's Before Sunrise. It ends on this cliffhanger. And for the next nine years, Wait, question first. Did you want them to meet up again? Like what were you hoping would happen? What, what? Yeah. And I think so. That's probably the, the point of it is that you can make a choice as a, as a viewer at that point, well, what do you want to happen? What do you think is going to happen? Yeah. And that's maybe like a sort of palm reading. It tells you a little bit about yourself. Uh, of course I wanted them to, to hook up and meet and live happily ever after. Like, you that's know, very unlike you. No, I, I really enjoy <laughs> movies that are set in, in reality, whether that's good or bad. So <laughs> depressing and bad things happening can be real and reflective of the real world and good things happen okay. can be as well. So what did you want to happen? I mean, it's difficult because you know there's another movie. You know that already going in. Or I did. Yeah, but you did. But when it came out, there was no other movie. No, exactly. But I did going in know that there was two more movies. So you're like, well, they're going to reconnect. I guess I sort of expected that they wouldn't. Like that there there was this sense of like something being missing. And like I said, I didn't feel that they had that great of a chemistry anyway. And so I didn't feel this urgent need for them to get back together. It wasn't like you're separating Romeo and Juliet. You know what I mean? It's like... It could have just been one amazing night that they remembered forever. That's, I feel like, what it should have been, I guess. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, in in, in the real world, like, mm. if these people were my friends, I think, like, that would have been better. But then, having said that, you would always wonder. And I think yeah. that was the point, too, of, like, yeah. if you would always wonder... And Ethan Hawke's character, Jesse, makes that point when he's trying mm. to get a talker into getting off the train in the first place. Like yes. future you will look back on this. She'll be married in some unhappy marriage or just kind of bored and look back on all the guys she's met and wonder what could have been. And like this is your opportunity to find out in this case what could yeah. it be with me. And, yeah, I guess they answered that question. Well, there was also, it shouldn't be understated, there was a lot for them to overcome here as well. It's not like they just met at the local pub and they were choosing whether to have a second date. I mean, she lived in Paris. He lived in the US. You know, they're on other sides of the world basically. And for them to actually hook up means one of them making a significant change. Mm. And it's obviously a theme that is tackled later on when when that does happen, Mm. you know. But at that point there's a lot for them to think about, like how much do I want to actually uproot my life and change my whole life for this person that I've just had one one night with. And even if it's not now I need to make the decision, I still need to go back there in mm. six months and and have an idea that, well, this is worth, I guess, taking a, a risk mm. with. Mm. And not knowing that the other person's going to turn up. So mm. key to this is that they've decided they wouldn't share any contact yeah. information. They were literally just saying this date, this time, be here or be square. <laughs> That's right. And they don't even know each other's full names or anything like that. Mm. And there was no Google. There was no Google. (laughs) Yeah, so that nine years later, the sequel comes out. The sequel is called Before Sunset, came out in 2004. And this one, we can talk a bit about writing because (laughs) it turns out that Jesse has become a writer. Mm -hmm. The movie opens in Paris. They're at the famous Shakespeare and Co bookshop. 
he's there because he's written a novel about his night with Celine and he's at a book signing, right? And she turns up. Mm. So that's how they, they meet. And so this movie... It's a shorter movie. It's the shortest of the three. Mm, I think noticeably. it's only, Yeah, it felt like a long TV episode or something. Mm. It was just over an hour, an hour and 20 minutes, even less. And they're just now in Paris, walking around the streets of Paris, I guess having the next phase of their discussion and trying to... Well, what you failed to clarify there was that they did miss their connection. So they didn't meet again at the train station that six months later. It never Mm. happened. And again, not having each other's contact details, they had no way of ever getting in contact again. And Celine claims that she saw some ad for his book and was curious and basically figured out that it was him and Mm. decided to come to this Parisian bookshop to run into him intentionally. And, I mean, the fact that he's... Doing a book tour in Paris suggests that maybe he's trying to find her too. Yes. Well, he he even says that, I think, at some point, that, that he hoped that that would happen. Mm. And when the movie starts, you don't know what's happened. Yeah, and you don't know what's become of both of them. You know he's an author. That's pretty much all you know. Yeah, and you don't know if they didn't meet up mm. or what happened there. And it comes to light that he did go there to mm. meet her and she didn't. And she gives a reason that her grandmother died mm. and her and, funeral was that day or and her funeral was day, that day and I don't believe her <laughs> I don't know I mean I've got no reason not to believe her because part of that is well this is another random event like a yeah. random event brought them together a random event has prevented them from meeting again but also she could have made that up you would have thought, though, it would have come out in the third movie if she had made that up. Mm, maybe it'll um, come out in the fourth movie. We're a bit overdue for the fourth movie now. So. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so what else do we discover? We discover mm. that Jesse's married mm-hmm. with a son. We discover that Celine's in a effectively a long-distance relationship. She's in a relationship with, you know, fly-in, fly-out kind of situation. Neither of them are particularly satisfied in their relationships. So Jesse is married and the way he tells it is because he got someone pregnant and then they got married. And she's a real drag, which is just the yeah. classic story that any cheating dude tells yeah. the other woman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my wife. Oh, she's such a nag. Yeah. She's a horrible, horrible woman. But you don't get the f- impression that, like, he's married because that's what he set out to do. But, I mean, obviously you don't know his story as well. Listen, you're saying you don't believe her grandmother dying. Yeah. I reckon his wife's lovely. I reckon they had a lovely romance and he has just always fixated on the French girl, hasn't gotten over her, thinks about her every time he's slightly pissed off at his wife and has become obsessed. That's what I think. Yeah. Well, you never see his wife in the no, in, you don't. in any of these movies and so you never get to hear her part of the story. No. So I guess like underlying this is that you know that, look, he's written this book Mm. about her. Mm. On the one hand, he wanted to write it. It's like a great idea for a a book. But on the other hand, he he obviously wants to, to reconnect with her and he sees her and he's not really surprised. In his mind, I think that that's kind of what he was hoping would happen. Mm. And yeah. from his perspective... There's just, like, there's just zero surprise. Like when they r- run mm. into each other, it's not like, oh, my God, you're here. It's just like, oh, hey. Yeah. <laughs> and you, But you get the feeling very early on that, you know, he's got a plane to catch, but you know he's never going to catch that plane mm. from the start. He's like, oh, no, that's fine. We'll, we'll just walk for a bit. We'll get on this boat. It'll be fine. We'll drop you off on the way home. And then, of course, he doesn't get on the plane the end but that's, that's I'll just invite myself into your apartment I'll just hang around I'll just but the whole thing it, it's clear it, it is something that he set up 
And this is exactly what he wanted to happen. Mm. So the conversations this time around, you know, we're, we're going from our 20s into our 30s. She's working as a, like an environmental activist, I guess. Mm. So they talk a lot more about slightly more mature themes. It's a lot more about death. And I think there was a shift in the discussions between like their idealistic 20s and they have all these theories. Now they're a bit more cynical and they're a bit mm. more resigned mm. to how things kind of are. So like I think the underlying question here, the first night they were together was, are we going to see each other again? Mm. But now the question becomes like their lives are so much more tangled, mm. especially his life. Mm. I was saying that there is a, a barrier for them to overcome to get mm. together. You know, in their 20s, that that barrier was of a certain size and now it's much bigger Yeah, because now he has to leave his wife, he has to leave his son behind, move to, to France, presumably. But clearly he's willing to do that from the start. And he's she's just a fuck boy. Well, he's, he's just spent the whole time bitching about his wife who's, in my opinion, perfectly lovely. I've never <laughs> met her, but I'm just going to stick with that. Like, dude, come on. You met this girl, you completely idealised the relationship from the get-go. They acted like they were in love. I didn't buy it, not once. Mm -hmm. Like I said, the chemistry wasn't there. So it's like this manufactured story. It's very much like it's main character energy, right? Like yeah. I just want this to be romantic, whether or not it is. I don't know. But, like, they're both just creating this love story. Yeah. And acting in it. Yeah. They're acting, you but, know? Yeah. And then... Like, for sure, their conversation's great. Like, you know, they, they certainly have chemistry in the sense that they have this banter going on. But to me, it never appears as love, you know, mm. certainly not in the first movie. And, like, they've only known each other a few hours, so yeah, that makes sense, that's right? right? But even in this one, it's like this idealised version of what it's meant to be. And it's like, well, we're just going to run off into the sunset, ah, literally, because that's a romantic thing to do, not mm. because necessarily... I feel compelled to run off into the sunset with you, but just like you're the person who that would be romantic to do it with yeah. because we had this one night together. But I think that's what the movie does really well is ask these kind of questions like what even is love and mm. romance and, mm. and what do these things mean? Is it worth, you know, leaving your family for, for this person who you had a great night with and and is there even such a thing as like you know a soulmate someone you, mm. because we have this idea that these people were meant to be together or at least that's the the romantic trope is that these people are meant to be together and if people are meant to be together then shouldn't they do everything mm. they can to be together and i think the movie questions that you know, it's taking the idealistic view on the one hand and the cynical view on the other hand mm. And, I mean, they, they address it themselves repeatedly through their dialogue by sort of talking about, oh, but, you know, if we did get together, yeah. we'd just get pissed off with each other yeah. because that's the reality. And let's yeah. face it, that is the reality. You spend enough time with someone, you're going to find each other irritating, like that's normal. And so they, they talk about that all the time and then they just immediately decide, well, no, we're just going to have our romantic love story anyway. And I don't think they ever reject that idea. I don't think either of them are even so in love as to ignore that. They're very op going to it with open eyes that they will annoy each other actually and yeah. are already annoying each other. And, like, that's not romantic to me. Like, to not be so head over heels in love with someone that you just completely ignore all the red flags. Yeah, but then that's the thing. Like, there's another movie, um, Revolutionary Road, which had a, has a similar theme and it's this idea that, well, you know, when you're young you have a view of older people and you vow never to become like that. 
mm. because you think that you're you're smarter and that you're better and well you I've made I'm going to make the right choices and the reason it's going to work out for me is because I'm aware of what they're like and I'm so not I'm gonna not going to become the, like that. Not going to make and those mistakes. And what this movie is saying, well, you can be aware of that all you like. It's that's still the way the world is. <laughs> you know, you you can't run away from it. You can't mm. just talk about it and acknowledge it and have a go away. Mm. So they both talk through these things. They acknowledge them, but they still, to some degree, pretend that they don't exist. Mm. Like when you say, you know, we're going to hate each other and we, you know it's not going to be like happily ever after. Yeah, I know. Let's do it anyway. Mm. Well, you don't know then. You're not, you know. <laughs> so so, so that's, that's the question it asks. When we talk about the third movie and, and what they're going through in the third movie, does that invalidate what they had in the first two. Like, is the fact that later in your life, things aren't going to be happily ever after. You're going to have other problems. You're going to have things that you need to work through. Does that invalidate the decision? Does that invalidate the good times or the, the, the connection that you had? No, it just proves the point that everyone gets pissed off with each other eventually. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so, so maybe they're right in saying, yeah, let's just accept that and, and mm. move on. Yeah, choose it anyway. Choose it anyway, and maybe the, that's the romantic thing to do. Pragmatic is is, is, is the romantic thing the right thing to do? I don't know. Mm. I mean, he could have equally have chosen to stay with his wife. That would have been romantic. Yeah, but he wouldn't have been happy. Like he he, he bitched oh, about her for the whole movie. Yeah, like to the chick he wanted to bang. <laughs> but, but like this guy had written a book about her and like obsessed about oh. this night for the last ten years. Yeah, but that's and what... thought about it and like turned it over in his mind, written the whole thing down set it up so he was in Paris where he knew that she lived at this point and Ugh, like my eyes are rolling <laughs> and just to add one thing that they find out about each other is that during this nine-year period they were both living in New York at the same time mm. and a couple of streets away from each other and they just never ran, ran into each other in New York so he he was saying oh, I remember seeing you know a girl coming out of a bakery at 13th and Broadway and thinking, on the way to his wedding and thinking that's you and she's like, well, I lived at 11th and Broadway. And he was like, that may have actually been you. Like, I wasn't just hallucinating, seeing you everywhere. <laughs> I may have actually seen you. And like, there, once again, another moment that just didn't bring them together. Mm. They could have met and it could have been different. It was on the way to his wedding. Mm. Things would have, could have changed for both of them. Mm, it could have been, been a better. lot easier. <laughs> but that never happened. Like, how much of life is just these things that do and don't happen? Mm. I mean, though. Wouldn't you say if you're on your way to getting married, whether or not you hallucinate the French girl, is that not a red flag? Do you think that if he was on his way to his wedding and he saw her, he wouldn't just be like, stop the car. <laughs> like, you go to the wedding, I'll be there in a bit. Like, I've just got to buy a muffin from this bakery or something. You know? No, but like, my point is, mm. if you are on your way to your wedding and you are still so freaking obsessed with this chick that you think you see her at a bakery, should you maybe reconsider getting married? Yeah. You know? I mean, maybe it's normal to reflect on that stuff as you're getting married because it's like, okay, well, I'm making so, this big decision and like, I okay. want to be really sure I'm making this decision, but like... So, but then you've got to think about what the events were from his side of the story. And from his side of the story, he met this woman, they had a great night, he would have been willing to mm. leave his life for her. Mm. He went there and she didn't show up mm. and he thought it was over. He got married. He did the dutiful thing because she was pregnant. They got married and, you know, he thought he had no hope. And But he's still obsessed over her. He, mm. he wrote this book 
and then they met again. And now this situation is so much more tangled. And I think his actions make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and if she was lying about the grandma. <laughs> yeah, which she was. I just don't believe her. Like my grandma died and I couldn't make it. Come on. Like, Such a dog I, ate I my homework I and I couldn't kind come. of... I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm the bad guy, but in the third movie, you, I do you have a Celine? Like, what's the issue here? No. You're getting really pissed off about it. Like, no, no. I'm just I'm just you? thinking like <laughs> late, late, he was there for a few days, and he said he put flyers up and stuff like that with, with his phone number. Aww. She could have gone like a few days later and been like, maybe he's still around. Yeah, I don't know. She could have she made could've. an effort, and maybe she did die. But it also sounds like a, a convenient thing to have happened for her because. She was of two minds and thinking, should I do this? Oh, should I not? Should I do? Oh, my grandmother's died. Well, I guess I can't. Like, I, I get that you vibe You were getting really fired up about this. <laughs> <laughs> Bitch. <laughs> it's, it's funny because, like, these characters, sometimes he's so idealistic and romantic and other times he's just the opposite of that. Yeah. I really like that the characters are not consistent yeah. in, in the way that people are not consistent. Yeah, and sometimes she's really funny and insightful mm. and then other times she's just a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, again, hard relate. All right, so this movie, I guess we can go to the end. So the ending is he keeps missing his, his plane. He's like, no, don't worry, I'll get it, I'll get it. They end up dropping her back off at her little apartment Mm -hmm. in the middle of Paris. And he's like, oh, just play me a song. You play guitar and then I'll go. And of course. the eyes are rolling. So, yeah, they go go upstairs. Um, She makes some coffee or whatever. And then she plays in the song, this this waltz, which Julie Delpy, the actress, actually wrote that song. Okay. And the the lyrics to it. And it's all about him. It's all about the night that they had together, which, like, I cried a bit. Oh, no, it's sweet that it was reciprocated and it wasn't just in his mind. And there was something because she's very, she's much more guarded than, than he is. He's very much front street. Yeah. I'm going to like, I think we should get together. Mm. Let's make it happen. And that's been almost from the beginning where he's the one who, who says, get off the train, let's meet again. These are all his ideas. So what's her deal? Part of her character is she's afraid of, and she says it in one of the movies, like, I don't want to be defined by the man that I'm mm. with. And she sees herself as a very independent, strong person. Mm. And she hates yeah, she's worried about she's her... going to become just a housewife yeah, or something. Yeah, and she hates about herself that she's considering this. She's in some ways an anti-romantic person and mm. she doesn't like the fact that she's kind of in this situation. But, you know, despite that, the movie ends on another ambiguous kind of cliffhanger mm. you know that he you is know there. that he's he's running late you know at this that point he's going to miss his plane i think it may end with you're going to miss your plane i know kind of thing yeah. that's where it ends yeah but you don't know what's going to happen does he stay yeah does it fizzle they're both out? in relationships does he, exactly he's got a child there's there's so much there that they need to overcome to make it work you don't know what's going to happen next once again it's in your imagination what's actually going to happen mm. and what did you want to happen after this one? well it hadn't changed like you know you're He's almost still there you you've you've both had this amazing connection for at them. least give it give it a little chance but it's hard to give it a chance when you've got your your wife and your son oh, you know yeah she's a real drag that wife so yeah any other thoughts about the second installment so by the end of this one and i've watched them all in quick succession like within two days i've watched all three mm. and I mean, in terms of plot, like nothing happens, right? Yeah. And yet I was never bored. I was always interested. And I think it was the rawness of it. It was the real 
I guess you could see yourself in that situation. And now, you know, I'm as old as they are in the final movie, basically. And so I've had these periods of my life, you know, mm. and I've had these dramatic things happen and you can reflect back on past relationships or things that have happened and insert yourself into the story mm. and reflect on what these things mean to you. Like you're talking before about, you know, what is love and romantic love and like really just thinking about that for yourself and how that applies to your own relationships in the real world. I think that's nice to do in a way that's real mm. and not just like, oh, okay, I want to marry Ryan Reynolds. Or <laughs> you keep bringing him up. <laughs> do I? <laughs> you know, it's more like reflecting on your real life and on your real feelings in, in the real world. And from a writing perspective, it says a lot about the importance of character, the importance of mm. creating and dialogue. Um, absolutely. A movie that's 100% dialogue, you know, no plot, as you said, can say so much and, and do so much because that's that's how we live our lives. We don't yeah. live our lives in plots. You yeah. know, most of the time we live our lives in interactions and dialogue. Yeah, and um, all the moments in between yeah. the big stuff. I think that's what's interesting too because if you're writing books or stories, dialogue is often less of a feature. If you're writing screenplays or mm plays dialogue is it you know that's everything yeah. really and so I think that's a real distinction between like characters in books and mm. and stories versus characters in films as well like that you learn about characters in books more by what they do and by how they're described whereas in films obviously you learn about them by what they do and how they appear but largely through what they say mm. more so much more so than you would in a book and this film made that very clear. But I do find it interesting that, like, yeah, two films in, nothing has happened yet, yes. really much at all. I mean, they didn't even meet, you know, <laughs> like yeah. the dramatic scene didn't ever happen. Like there's a few twists, you know, she gets off the train, they do kiss on the Ferris wheel, they do have sex, they do meet again in Paris at the bookstore. Like there's a few things that mm. happen but really not much at all and yet you're enthralled the whole time and wanting to know what each of them are going to say. Yeah. And when they're arguing, you know, you're sort of hanging on the outcome of the argument and when they're pissing each other off, it's like you're getting stressed <laughs> because, yeah. you know, you want things to work out. You mentioned arguing and I was just thinking back to the first movie mm. where they have a little bit of an argument mm. and, like, they're young and idealistic and they're like, oh, did we just have our first argument? <laughs> and it was all, like, very cute. And then going into the second and third movie, they're having proper fights. Yeah. Like, it's different. Yeah. It's a different tone. So I just wanted to add, just from a, a writing perspective, when the movie opens and he's a writer and he's doing his book signing, he gets asked this question about, like, is she real? Mm. And he gives this bullshit answer about like writing what you know yeah, kind right. of thing, <laughs> which I enjoyed. He was like, oh, yeah, but, uh, you know, we all kind of write what we know and my experience has not been, you know, that wild. And he never really gives an answer. And that's when he sees her yeah. like in the thing. But I enjoyed that kind of moment of write what you know. <laughs> and especially because so I read about this movie that Linklater admitted actually this was based on a real life encounter that he had right back in 1989 it's, it with did a woman. feel so autobiographical but like how it funny really is did. that like yeah. you know, and he becomes how a writer meta. and then he writes and you know the parallel of the the director writing the movie and making the movie i mean i feel for for jesse's wife like imagine you're the <laughs> wife your husband's just gone off and written a book about this chick yeah 
that must be reckon, pretty tense in their relationship. Do you reckon already. the wife knows that he thought he saw Celine on the day they got married? Do you maybe, reckon he brought maybe, it up while they were at the altar? <laughs> no, but like maybe the whole time he's very cagey about that because he's never admitted it. Maybe he tells his wife like, "Oh mm. no, it's ah. a it's a completely fictitious story." And yeah, right. And she's believed that. And oh, come on, mm. she's no fool. I've decided. <laughs> <laughs> no, Why am I, I'm on going. team wife. I don't know. What's team, her name? I don't, I don't even know if she has a name. name. See, I, I would call myself a romantic, right? Mm-hmm. And to me, I'm barracking for the wife. <laughs> like, Celine, she didn't turn up. She's not invested. The wife's been there. Yeah. Well, it's hard to say because you only get it from his yeah. side of the story. And for sure there's more to it. Like, in the next movie, she's portrayed as a real bitch. Like, she's ruining their lives and blah, 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 blah. But maybe she's right. Yeah. Okay. So in the third movie we're talking now, there's a scene between Ethan Hawke and his now teenage son and the son basically says, oh, yeah, mum hates you and you yeah. can't be in the same room together. And I'm like, of course she bloody does. <laughs> like, fair enough. You've yeah. run off with the French woman that you wrote a book about. Yeah. Yes. She hates you both. You've left her with the kid. You've run off to Europe. It's understandable. Yeah. yeah. Big time. All right, so let's talk about it. The third movie is called Before Midnight, another nine years after. The characters are 41. And so the last movie ended with a like a cliffhanger, kind of a potentially happy ending. But I think For who? Not for the wife. Anyway, the, I'll get the off wife, that bandwagon. The wife, the wife <laughs> is hard done by for sure. But I, I really like this movie and it might be my favourite of the three just because it's the only movie that I've seen that actually asks the question like, okay, so we've done the romance thing and this is where the movie ends, happily ever after. But actually, what does that look like? And, and So, no, 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 no. What we're establishing in here is that this is your favourite movie because it is the most depressing of the three. It is the most depressing. <laughs> it's, it's, well, tell so, us about okay, it. Okay, so during these last two movies, they built up all these actions and consequences Mm. and here is where the consequences play out Mm. but here they are like the repercussions are well he's had to leave his wife he's now got this son who lives in another country to to him jesse's son hank Mm. and who he has no involvement in his his life minimal he sees him in holidays he sees him on, on holidays and it's a struggle and blah 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 so he's he's had to make that sacrifice moving to, to France. Now she's also had to make sacrifices too because they've got these kids, these twins, and she's de facto the one looking after the kids because he's the writer. Yeah, so and listen, again, you've just like jumped all the way over the story here. Mm. They're together. They're together. They're yes, together. they're together. They have twins. Yes. That was important information. Reading between the lines, <laughs> they got together in the last movie and they've been <laughs> together ever since. Yeah. So how, how can you pivot your romance into the real world, into mm. real life? They um, just skipped the romance, right? Like we didn't really we didn't see, see any it. of it. We didn't see the honeymoon period where no. they've been together for. But he writes a book about it. He, he does. writes the book about <laughs> like they had wild sex for weeks on end <laughs> and publishes it. And, <laughs> and his yeah. wife hates him for some reason. Well, she's Why? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were still married at that point, by the way. <laughs> That's true. What a dick. And both books, they said, like, it's, it was even more successful. They said the first book brought them together. The second book paid for their house. And the one thing that I liked is, you know, from a writer perspective, he had these two books that were successful that were completely drawn from his experience with her. Like, they're, mm. they're her books, basically. Mm-hmm. They're about her 
all of the inspiration, all the good stuff in, in his life comes from her. And they ask him what he's going to write next. And he comes up with just the most garbage <laughs> the idea. Wankiest the wankiest The most like, does he say, oh, I want to write a book that takes place within like a pop song is one thing he says in the second movie. Yeah. And in this third one, he's like, he starts talking about time and. No, he's talking about how he's going to write a book about all these people with different brain issues. Yeah. So like someone who has, who experiences permanent deja vu about everything. Permanent deja vu. And, and then he tries to describe it like this deja vu, it happens to a person in 1932 and then it happens to a person in, you know, 1979. And they're like, but that's just different times. And he's like, no, no, you don't get it. Like it's, it's, it's this whole thing. Like, and he's got no other ideas apart from like what has come to, to like- him through her. Don't you just see that as autobiographical as well? Like that was just yeah. screaming to me. That was an idea that the writer of the film had that yeah. he will never use because it's a rubbish idea. Yeah, yeah. So he yeah, injected it into true. this movie instead. Yeah. Okay. So this movie before midnight starts off at the airport scene. He's saying goodbye to his son. He's going back to America. They're in Greece on holiday. Right, and they're staying at the house of a writer's a writer friend mm-hmm. of Jesse's, who's taking them into the house. Is and, he a friend? I didn't get uh, the impression they even knew each no, other. No, a writer Just colleague or whatever. Randomly invited. Writer. Mm. And so they're staying at the house, and they get to interact with other couples. Mm. So that's interesting to see that the dynamic of other couples, Mm. older couples, couples of the same age and much younger couples. And, you know, there's a couple there who are probably 20 years younger than them, who are about the age, them at that age, and seeing that couple through their eyes and the men were saying, like, (laughs) how good is being young, you know, Mm. and being in that situation and reflecting on that when you're now in your 40s and... You've got like an old woman there whose husband has died and she's kind of talking about the transience of it all and what she misses about him and and she forgets what he looks like sometimes and then sometimes it all comes flooding back to her. And like, again, what's the whole thing about? Should you avoid these experiences because they're painful and, mm. you know, they've destroyed parts of their lives, they've destroyed parts of their family's lives, Jesse and, and Celine here, but at the same time, like, you're going to die and, mm. you know, what's the point of it at the end? Should you live the life that is bland and you haven't taken the romantic step and you've done the right thing and should you have shied away from that? And, and at the end, like, what, what's, what are the important things? And, you know, for, for her, her husband was important, but at the same time she doesn't remember him that well and he's gone and... Like mm. all of these questions come up that are, that are unanswered and you have the other couple there, I guess the, the Greek couple, and they have a completely different relationship where Jesse and Celine have these cerebral discussions and really talk through these things. This couple has this dynamic that is just about arguing and, mm. and it's all like they love each other, but it's, it's some other different kind of mm. relationship that it's just a different thing. There's not just one kind of relationship you can have and it's not all about this particular romantic relationship. There are other ways of yeah. being, you know, that's what it highlights. Yeah. And I think, again, all the relationships were very real, right? Mm. Like the, not idealised, just, I mean, the young couple you might see as an idealised relationship, but only in the sense that it's a young couple, mm. you know what I mean? And they're early on in their relationship. You know, you see the Greek couple and think, that what they have is pretty great, right? Like they seem pretty settled and happy with each other and comfortable and still having a good time, able mm. to enjoy each other's company and that that's pretty good. You know, yeah. that's that's what anyone would hope for, I would think, after a long marriage, you mm. know, to still find each other amusing and want to be around each other. 
but it quickly devolves from there. Yeah. So the whole second half of this movie is pretty much them fighting in one way or another. Do you know what I loved about it? Mm. The the very real thing about it. So they get sent um, by the Greek couple, I believe, to a night in a hotel. Yeah. They say, you know, we've bought this hotel for you. We'll look after the kids. You have a great night at this hotel. Yeah, go have a great night. So they've had six weeks holiday in Greece with the kids and now they're going to go off and have a night together. And what was just really realistic to me is that when you have a date night, with your partner, that is absolutely the time you have a massive argument. Yes. <laughs> it's like yeah. it's all been building up. You yeah. get some alone time, bam. Yeah, and there's an expectation and there yeah, is. Yeah, pressure. Oh, you're just going to have a great night. And she calls it out like there's no spontaneity here. Yeah. Like it's just, it's all planned. Yeah. You know, their first night was all spontaneity yes. and all romance. And this is like the opposite. Yeah. And how can you be romantic in such a situation? But there's so many little jabs that they make oh, at each other. So good. I'm like, <laughs> like, oh, it's... I was getting insulted. Mm. I'm like, it's like I felt like it was being said to me. It's, the argument was so realistic. And again, because I can relate so much with mm. Celine. So some of the things he said to her, which Andy would never say to me. <laughs> Because he is much nicer than Jesse. He would never say it, but I know he's thinking it. Mm. <laughs> so to hear it out loud, it's like, ooh. <laughs> yeah. So even before that, they're just kind of having a nice walk around in the park and and she asks him, like, would you ask me to get off the train yeah. if it was today? Just say yes, mate. It's like, you know, you're, you're one of those trapdoor spiders <laughs> with the trapdoor open. Like, <laughs> but he takes the question seriously, like yeah. as if as if I'm going to come up with a response instead of just saying, oh, of course. Like yeah. he, he gives it a serious thought. he's an idiot. And, but would she accept a yes even? Like knowing her character, she would just be like bullshit. Yeah. But that's why she asked it because yeah. she knows it's bullshit. But like that, that's a reality. When they're 19 or 23 or however old they were, it's a different situation and well, now they've been together for 20 years you can't say if i just saw you in the room would i kind are you of joking would. you've got a wife doesn't she ask you shit like that what no. i love asking andy if he would still love me if i was a worm that's my favorite no, question but that's a different question that's a different question <laughs> the question would you still love me if i was xyz fine but if i'd never if it was just today we we're meeting for the first day she was asking like you didn't even know me just if you saw me like, yeah. would you still do what you did that day, which is like the most improbable romantic thing of like, let's just get yeah. off the train together. But that was like a once in a lifetime thing that you, you oh, might stop. do. It's not. Are you check Like, God, men are stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, like. Context clues, people. Mm. Read between the lines. What does she want here? Yeah. yeah Validation. I've... But that's Not what I'm saying. Like, like she's, he treats it as if it's a serious question. You're and treating she, it like it's a serious question. Just, Andy, if you're listening and I ask you that question, don't answer it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so they're in the hotel room. They're starting to get it on. It's all hot and heated. And then Hank phones. Hank is Jesse's mm. son. And he phones Celine mm. because Celine is put in the position of basically parent. You know, yes, so there's this whole dynamic of Jesse saying, oh, I really want to be with my son and I want to guide him through life. And I really hate the fact that I'm not there for him in his life. And we should really think about moving to Chicago. So blah, blah, blah. But we can spend time with him. Meanwhile, she's the one actually interacting with him. Mm. And I don't know, there's a mention of a science project that she mm. forgot to put in his bag. Like, why is that her job mm. to put it in his bag? And why is she the one who's calling and, and saying, you know, let me know when you're mm. safe off the plane? So, I mean, that's also 
a common thing, isn't it? Like mm. with Putting all the emotional labour on the woman. Exactly. And then just intellectualising your fatherhood over on the side. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they have that conversation and then it, it escalates and they say some pretty, hurtful things to each other. Things. It's implied that he's had an affair and it's pretty clear that he has from well, his, yeah. his non-denial. Yeah, that was rough. This is the thing. I'm, again, I'm in, on team wife. Like, I don't... <laughs> You can't even... You should get that T-shirt yes. made up. <laughs> like, you can't even be faithful to Celine. Yeah. This great love that you have. Yeah. His love is for himself. He's, he's in it for the idea of it. You know, he's not in it for her. She's not in it for him. Yeah. They're both in it for the idea of it. Yeah. And that's, that's really depressing. Yeah. And, like, he rationalises it and... His position that what he feels about himself is, I've given up everything. I've got a son that I don't see. I moved all the way to Europe, to France. So I deserve to have an affair. I've (laughs) taken up a, a, well, no, well, I've I've taken up a position. He alludes to some job he has that Mm. is all he can kind of get in, in France. And I've done this so that you can be where you want to be and you can do your, your career. So he's saying like, I've given all of myself where it counts, where it matters. Mm. And for him, the affair is not a, that's not what defines I'm rolling what my he's eyes given. again. That's how he feels about himself. But like to be Leopards fair. Leopards and spots, mate. But to be fair, <laughs> it's not a big deal for her either. Like that's not. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the only thing that saves it is that yeah. she doesn't seem to particularly care and it's implied that she may have had affairs or whatever as I, well. I think she probably hasn't, but maybe she has. I don't know. Mm. Like you, you, She you didn't argue know. too hard against it either. So, And so this, the scene ends <laughs> with her leaving the room and coming back several times yes, to like drop some that. more bombs, which is great. <laughs> And they both say some things. So she walks out. She walks out (laughs) and leaves and then walks back in. She's like, and anyway, I don't love you anymore. Yeah, Yeah, she says, you know, you know what all of this means? It's really simple. I don't love you anymore. Yeah. And then she leaves. Burn. Which, you know, is the least of what he deserves if he's been cheating on her. But anyway, yeah. And so she sits at the cafe at a like a restaurant cafe open air thing at the hotel. And then he turns up and there's this whole scene where he plays like a time traveler and he's making the argument like I've, I've got this letter from your future mm. self, which is just a, a napkin yeah. that he kind of makes up and he's making this argument of like your future self is writing to you saying, you know, this is just a moment, just kind of work through it and, and in the future you'll be happy and if you leave now you'll wish you hadn't and your future mm. self is telling me that the right thing to do is to Master stay here. Master manipulator. But, yeah, it's manipulation and she calls him out on it. She says, you know, this is not a game. What yeah. are you doing? And It is kind of romantic. I did the, find it redeeming but also manipulating so I don't know (laughs) and that's the the tension I mean he might be right as well like he might be right that you just well he probably is what are you gonna do but maybe she doesn't love him anymore and and maybe Mm. he doesn't love her anymore maybe they never did and like what's important here is it is it this whole story that they have about themselves is it this whole we met on the train and blah 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 is this whole history that they have together is it this illusion of love do they actually love each other is it worth being in love with someone that you have just like these completely terrible fights with and mm. their life seems to be dictated by the fact that neither of them is really happy in the position, probably her more so mm. than him, but they're really uncomfortable with the position they're in at this time of life. Is it just the time of life? Do mm. we then go to the age that that older lady was when things will be 
you know, mm. looked back with fondness and you and you will wish that you'd stayed? Mm. Or is it all like bullshit? This third movie ends also on the same kind of cliffhanger, the same ambiguity. Will they stay together or will they break up? And does it matter? Like is one outcome different from the other? I mean, good point. Like does it matter? <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, you just die in the end. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> just die. We're all going to die. <laughs> Jeez. Um, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter, does it? Like the movie could have been different. They could have not got together or they could have. Mm. And if they didn't get together, he would have been with his wife having the would same. He would have been cheating on her. Well, but <laughs> they would have been having other fights yeah. and worrying about other things and she'd probably be the same. What I think it's kind of arguing for, if it's arguing for anything, is is the fact that like things are just going to be how they are. And there's no such thing as the wonderful life that was meant to be. Like there's no such thing as just the perfect life. There are good things. There are very powerful things like the first night they met, very powerful, wonderful night that they had. But that doesn't mean that you find the person that you had that wonderful night with and you get together and your whole life's going to be wonderful. Mm. That's not what it means. I mean, I feel like my relationship with my husband. I'm a romantic. I believe we have a romantic relationship and I believe we had the perfect life mm. and then we had our incident, yeah. <laughs> my husband's accident, and it did change our life dramatically. Yeah. And so I think I can reflect on some of this stuff now, like going back to our 20s when yeah. we met and having that just, you know, explosive, like powerful romantic mm. love and feeling like soulmates, and I still believe that we are. And then you move on through life and, you know, in, in our early 30s, like starting a family and things change, you know, the dynamic of the relationship changes. It's very difficult to have young children. You know, it's hard on any relationship mm. to have young children, but you get through that and you're stronger. And now, like now that we've had this great trauma in our lives of Andy's accident, now I feel like it's the real shit. You know what mm. I mean? And that, that stuff is like an idealised view, like that can't just continue on forever, just this kind of notion of this perfect life, that there are bumps in the road no matter what. Yeah. And those bumps can be different and it's usually better off if you don't try jumping off them on a mountain bike. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you can you can grow from there too. Like if you have this history with someone, you can have something deeper. Yeah. Like, I don't know. And I feel like with Jesse and Celine, you know, when they first meet, it's just surf. It's nothing. They both just want this romantic story where they meet in a city and they have this night together and it's really not about each other at all. It's about themselves. And later when they're having these arguments, it's like, actually, that's the real shit. Yeah. Like, if you can be with each other through that, you've had kids, you've had, you know, difficulties in your life, you've had to make big decisions about where to live and all that shit, that sacrifice that they've made. That's where the connection comes. Mm. I don't know. You get the feeling though, you get the sense with this particular couple that they never really have that deeper connection. Yeah. Right? They live separate lives. Yeah. You don't feel like they've gone through and built a stronger relationship mm. out of it. And so much of their relationship is built on this ideal, especially from his perspective that, and I think he, in his mind, he's like, well, I'm the guy who got off the train with yeah. you and I'm the guy who came back and wrote the book and I've like orchestrated this, this whole relationship mm. and it's all about these grand romantic gestures. But beyond that, there's just no deeper kind of root in there, yeah. I think. And maybe that's maybe if they'd met at six months. And they'd mm. started the relationship there without all of the 
complications in their life. Maybe things would have been, you know, you don't have a son in the picture and an ex-wife and whatever. But yeah, there's still things fizzled that they, out. <laughs> but they still have things that they fight over and they still have things that they don't agree on. I mean, there's this whole thing with him being an artist and allowed to be an artist mm. and her saying, well, I used to write music. Why don't I get to do my mm. artistic thing? And he's like, oh, you should do that. And on one level, yeah, she should do that. And he'd probably support her to some yeah. degree, but she also kind of doesn't really want to do that, but she mm. also wants to be able to say, I want to do that. Yeah. And there's a the whole thing about her dream job. Mm -hmm. Like a second ago you were you know, unsure if you even wanted it. Now it's your dream job. And she's like, well, it is my dream job, even if I have a bit of a doubt about it. They both have this selfishness. Mm. And part of that is using these things not as real things that they're concerned about, but they're using them as little yep. tools and levers in the relationship. Yeah. Like she probably doesn't care that much about the job, but she wants something for herself. Yeah. And he probably doesn't care about his son that much because really mm, how he's could not you the if one. you've left and yeah and and he's not and it's not like he's the one speaking to him on the phone yeah. but he uses that as a as a bit of a lever in the relationship there's this whole kind of game that they're both playing mm. against each other and they do touch on that very directly the idea of love being like sacrificial or mm. not and you know he talks about how in past relationships and this is in the first film talks about how in past relationships, like, he has been selfish and, mm. and not really given himself to it. And I guess he has a view that love is supposed to be selfless mm. or that that's what society makes you think, that love is supposed to be selfless, but actually it's the most selfish thing you mm. can do is the message that he's sort of... But he also has this perception that he's sacrificed so much, but mm. really he hasn't. Yeah. Like, really what he's done he is... He got what he wanted. He got what he wanted and yeah. he, he sacrificed, in quotes, his wife and his child, but he didn't really care that much no, he to just, begin with. No. And he moved to Paris, which, I mean, he probably loves it, but but he can kind of say I sacrificed and yes. I, complicated stuff. But, you know, really interesting characters and fantastic movies, in my opinion. I have to say I did enjoy them. I did find them very compelling. Definitely makes you think. And I think the third movie in particular, I, I agree, it was mm. my favourite as well. And I think probably because that dynamic is so strong and mm. it's it's where we're at, you know what I mean? It's yeah. our stage of life and that argument was just fucking great. <laughs> it was so good. Yeah. <laughs> it was just so good. Like you're saying they're writing the bits for each other. Yeah. I can see that. <laughs> yeah. I can see that. I could roast myself so hard if I wrote Andy's arguments for me. But it was very well written and very subtle. I don't even know how you do that. Coming back to the writing thing again. Mm. But how do you as a writer get something so true? I don't know. It should be it should be easy, shouldn't it? It should be easy to write something true, to present mm. a situation, especially one so mundane, right? An argument between yeah. a couple. And to just present that and for everyone to go, yep, that's really realistic. Mm. I can see myself in that and what have you. And yet it's one of the hardest, the hardest bloody thing. things to do. And so to have done it so successfully is incredibly impressive. Yeah. And I I wonder how, like what what do you think? What do you think makes this so real apart from maybe the real-time yeah. view? And maybe that's all it is, I don't know. But I think a lot has to do with the collaboration mm. and the fact that there were three or four writers mm. and there was nine years in between. <laughs> I don't know how much time of that was spent actually actively writing and preparing for these movies, but... For talented writers, really, and actors, 
you know, because the, the acting is is a big part of it as well, not mm. just the writing. Like mm. the the performances were, especially in the last movie, like they were the scene in the hotel room. I was like marveling that they can capture that so well, mm. and just the storming off it, but not in a dramatic way, in a in a realistic way. Yeah. But I think that these these scripts must have been worked and reworked mm. and added to and just refined down to exactly what they needed to be. And the great thing I think about how they were written is is that they didn't cut to the point of doing the thinking for you. Mm. At every step they just left the ambiguity in there. Mm. Which way do you want to think about it? Are you on team wife or are you on <laughs> team husband? What does make it seem real is the fact that you do have these loose ends mm. and it's not tightly scripted. Like the dialogue is not being written for an end. Mm. Like you're not writing the dialogue to get to somewhere with a plot. Which is just the opposite of what you're told all the mm. time, right? Like as writers you're told basically everything needs to be there. Either yeah. you are exposing character or mm. you are furthering the plot. If you're not doing either of those things, it doesn't belong in your mm. story. I mean, certainly there was a lot of exposing of character in yeah. the dialogue of, of this, so that's absolutely true. But there was a lot of stuff that I guess theoretically didn't need to be there, and yet I don't know what you would cut. Like, But that's the thing, like if you're an editor and you've got this as a manuscript, like an editor might go, well, you know, the scene where they're talking those two actors about the play in the first movie, Yeah, just cut that. Like, yeah. Why is that there's there? There's no relevance to anything It never that comes, comes up after. again. And it doesn't really say that much about their characters. No, it doesn't at a, all, actually. It says nothing about their characters mm. at all. They just have this brief interaction with some people in the but street. But it does add to the realism because it does. you have random interactions with people and that's, yeah. that's life. I wonder what was cut. You know, there must yeah. have been things that were cut. I'm sure there were. But, yeah, you're right. Like the, the script isn't really written in a way where there's payoffs for things mm. and there's like a cohesive through line. It just is. None of the movies resolve. Like what happens in the end? I mean. Use your imagination. Yeah. Whatever you want to happen. And that's interesting too. I mean, again, like you would be told as a writer, don't do what they did. Yeah. Absolutely do not leave on that cliffhanger. Mm. Like that's, people will be up in arms, you know, mm. they'll be, want your head on a stick. And yet here we are. And, and it was great. Like how else could you leave it? You yeah. can just wrap it up because there is no wrap up, right? Because yeah. it's 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 just a, a snippet of a life. It's not actually a story at all. There was some allusion to that in the second movie, wasn't there, when he talks about the book that he wrote based on that first night. And like there was a bit in that where they did meet up and live happily ever after. But didn't the publisher want to cut it because it was too unrealistic or that was too... Yeah, right. I'm sure it's, again, the meta thing. It's mm. reflecting what actually happened. They, pro I'm they sure probably they did have, have an ending where they met up again and they went, no, that kind of undermines the whole movie, doesn't it? It, it, did, it would have. Mm. It really would have because it's that lack of satisfaction that makes you reflect, that makes you sort of think about the different possible outcomes and in your own life the different possible choices you could be making about any range of things, but especially in relationships, you know. The sliding doors moment of who you end up with and are they really soulmates and all of that sort of stuff, you can only reflect on if there's no ending. And we don't have a moral of the story. Should they have got together? We don't know. Are they going to stay yep. together? We don't know. And all you can do is just think about all it. All we know is that they ended up exactly like the couple on the train who were fighting <laughs> at the start because that's inevitable and that's the circle of life. All right, so Amanda, now it's your turn to recommend something to me. What do you got? Well, look, you're very well read and that's an issue. 
when I'm trying to recommend things to you. And I'm going to hazard a guess that you have read this, uh, but I would like you to reread it and mm-hmm. think about it. The book I have chosen for you today is Wuthering Heights. By Emily Bronte. All right. So you have read it. (laughs) (laughs) Not for several years now, so I will read it again. And I don't know if you recall, but you were a guest at my wedding and I actually quoted Wuthering Heights in my speech. Oh, yeah, I don't recall that. What what was the quote? Do you remember? Well, it was a bit of a paraphrase, but I believe I said, I am Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) No, I believe I said, I am Andrew, which is my husband's name. As opposed to I am Heathcliff. Come on, mate, keep right. up. Okay. It's been a while, hasn't it? it has this is why you need to reread yeah, it. Yeah. I do have an unhealthy obsession with my husband, just like Catherine had with Heathcliff. <laughs> it's probably good to have an unhealthy obsession with your husband. Is it healthy or unhealthy? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I look forward to reading that. It, it has been a few years, but it's a book that I enjoyed. And I think it's a book that you can reread and get a lot out of rereadings. Totes. Like totes my goats. I've read it. I've under reread the surface it. There. For those playing along at home, if you have read it, don't bother reading it again. <laughs> 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 no, just, <laughs> just, um, just you know what you get if you reread Wuthering Heights? What do you get? More mores. More mores. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that one hurt to say. And that brings us to the end of another episode. So until next time, right on. Right on. Thank you for listening to Not Quite Right. If you'd like to reach us via email or follow us on social media, you can find all the links on our website, notquiterightpodcast.com. That's W-R-I-T-E. And if you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcasting app. Something doesn't seem quite right. Rewrite your face. (laughs) The problem is you. It's not your writing. It's It's you, personally. Who you are and what's in your head. Like oh, my God. Your entire... Now I want to write that. <laughs> now I want that. Wouldn't that make a great flash fiction? Yeah, like, just the feedback. Just the deeper feedback. Like the you. It's, it's you. you. <laughs> Honestly, that, though, I mean, I was talking with a Twitter friend recently posted about basically spite mm-hmm. success, you know, yeah. like, and... That's my biggest motivator. So, like, you have to have that sweet spot. You've got to go for me past the point where I'm irritated and frustrated and mm. all the way towards enraging me. Yeah, spurring you on to succeed, <laughs> just like, on. fuck that one person who... Because <laughs> that's my favourite. Mm. Don't cheerlead me. Yep. Come in, set everything on fire, be wrong preferably. So when you're receiving, like, the Pulitzer Prize, you're like, this is dedicated to that one <laughs> fucking bitch on Twitter <laughs> who said my prose was prosaic. <laughs> what a bitch. What a bitch. <laughs> Fuck you, book girl 321. Oh, no, there probably is a book girl 321. Mm. Sorry, book girl 321, <laughs> but the problem is you. Yeah. <laughs>